For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the return of Voices for the Cure. Meet a local group united by an interest in ancient Egypt. And Beth Serdit pays attention to a misunderstood desert inhabitant. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's a diagnosis no one wants to receive, but an estimated 1.3 million people must face every year. Breast cancer is the most prevalent cancer in the world. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Voices for the Cure lets those whose lives have been touched by cancer share stories of courage, love, and hope. For seven years, nurse and performance artist Jennifer Coughlin thought she had left cancer behind. When it returned, it came with a vengeance and a stage four cancer diagnosis. Next, Jennifer talks about what that means with her partner, Ruben Palma. I had been getting yearly scans um, and nothing had been showing on the scans. And then I noticed that I started getting sick more often, like more colds. Um, I started getting injured more in ways that didn't make sense to me. But um, being a nurse, you know, that's at least having a lot of colds and things like that is not unusual because we work, we're working with sick people in a high stress environment. But then I started to feel some lumps in my collarbones. And then I had my 10-year checkup with my nurse practitioner, and then I had her kind of feel the, the lumps that I found, and um, the diagnosis went from there. It was suspicious right away um, upon her feeling them, and um, it was a little bit surprising to everyone that so long had passed, and I had just been on tour with an acrobatic stilt company, and... Um, I got really injured on the tour um, in a way that just wasn't consistent with having a healthy body. So when all the pieces kind of came together, it kind of made sense, but it was still really shocking because there were another, you know, none of my labs had shown anything up until that point, none of my scans. So in between all that, there's a lot of waiting, and uh, Ruben was a, a part of that, and I don't know what that waiting was like for you. It's like agonizing. <laughs> it's like always hurry up and wait game as this um besides just being able to heal and being having to deal with all of these insurance and paperwork and different people's opinions and in a way it kind of simplified things a lot and really making things stand out of what's really important and there's like just a lot of petty things a lot of being in this performer world like I think that's what brought us together and and sharing our life was a lot of this like collaboration and body and movement and dance and um, theater and stilt walking and in all that drama comes a lot of human drama and so it helped break a lot of relationships and that weren't really working and it helped to just focus on really what mattered, like my love and life and being happy, enjoying like these moments instead of really worrying about any outcome at all and just really actually being present. <laughs> In a way, being a nurse um, and being diagnosed with something like this, you have an advantage. I ended up being treated at the hospital 
that I work at, which can feel vulnerable, but at the same time too, I chose to focus on the fact that my um, my nurse practitioner is a friend of mine. And um, since I used to work in the ICU, I know how quickly we can get back test results. So I knew that I didn't have to wait for two weeks for a, a scan result and um, my nurse practitioner could give me a little bit of more of an inside scoop. Uh, so that is an advantage. And then it's really, it's kind of terrifying being a nurse um, and having worked with patients with the uh, same diagnosis that I have and working with them as they're dying and then trying to separate that from, you know, my experience or this impending experience that I'm likely to have. So um, I ended up not um, leaving the bedside, um, not working with patients anymore, partially because I ended up working with so many end-stage cancer patients and I couldn't handle it emotionally. It was just a lot. So I completely had to change my job. I'm still in nursing, but I don't work with patients anymore. And that's been that's been really hard because I, I really loved that interaction. Wow, this diagnosis now. This treatment's been going on about a year and a half. And it seems like a really long time. It has just been so thick <laughs> every day. It seems like it's been years. So then it's nice to realize and talking about it, this, like, oh, wow, it really hasn't really been that long. And a lot, a lot has changed. So we lived a lot in this short amount of time <laughs> and really experienced, like, um, every moment. Um, so, yeah, it's, like, nice to be and learn and just step back and having to push. I think I'm really grateful in a way to be able to actually have time to heal myself and take it easy and from train, training, training. For stage four metastatic breast cancer, life expectancy is only two to three years. So, um, and that hasn't really changed a whole lot in the last 20 years, even though um, there's new newer drugs. As a whole, metastatic breast cancer only gets about 5% of all the money that's pumped into like breast cancer awareness. So, it's kind of hard to feel hopeful sometimes because people, in trying to give you hope, they're like, well, maybe a cure, a cure is coming, a cure is coming. And it's like, well, I mean, you can't live your life by statistics, but if only 5% of this is going into researching ways to keep us alive, then how it's hard to put your faith solely in that. And for the future, it for a while, like I couldn't even think that far ahead because I felt like I would be dead in a year you know like in the beginning you're so scared and your body becomes so unfamiliar to you um, even though it doesn't look different on the outside you know and that's what's different about this stage of disease too is all of the treatments are focused on quality of life and that's a hard thing to hear um, when you're 35 um, and you know that being said um you know, I just had a year, uh, my year anniversary of being no evidence of disease. And what that means is that my body has completely responded to the drugs that have been given to me and and all the other things that I do. And we can't find any cancer in me right now, but we know that it's there. Like, it, it will always be there. I won't ever not have cancer. As far as thinking about the future, I just think a lot about the things that bring us both a lot of happiness and doing them together as much as we possibly can. Talking about all of this, things seem so bad. Things seem so 
headed towards towards the worst, but then you look around and things are really good, and we're really happy and having a really good time, and a lot of people around us sharing a little bit more focus and having intention instead of just like wandering around. So yeah, it's really nice to have things to look forward to, making like simple plans. For me, it's been a nice experience just to kind of hear like your thoughts, just to, yeah, reflect on, it's like we know we've been through a lot in the last year and a half and um, yeah, but to have that, that heard and, and validated is, has been a gratifying experience, so thank you. Oh, baby, I love you so much. Thanks for forcing me to do this. I think I'm used to <laughs> I'm used to being a character and performing and be, playing some other role. So it's nice to be able to come back into my own body and my whole, and myself and be myself. And it's nice to have opportunities to do that. Thank you. I so. love you so much, and can't imagine not having you with me every day. Jennifer Coughlin talked to her partner in love and dance, Ruben Palma. Voices for the Cure is produced in cooperation with Susan G. Komen for the Cure, Southern Arizona. Deserts can be ideal for preserving structures and artifacts. The Arizona chapter of the American Research Center in Egypt is a local group that focuses on exploring that region's rich legacy. Tony Paniagua has an interview. Dr. Mary Ombi and Leslie Bromberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, Dr. Ombi, so RC is the American Research Center in Egypt. You are the president of the Arizona chapter. How did you come into this position? Well, I had uh, been working in Egypt for a little over 10 years, and um, I had been finishing up my schooling, and I came back to Tucson, where I'd been doing my undergraduate, and I really wanted to get back involved with RC, and so there was an opportunity for me to become president last May when the other president stepped down, and I was really happy to, to take over and contribute and help bring some new researchers and people from overseas to give great talks on their research. And how did your interest in Egypt begin? Um, my dad, who was a professor, actually had a graduate test he was giving to a student in Egypt, and so I begged to go along, and he <laughs> graciously allowed me to do it. And so when I was 18, I actually turned 18 in Egypt, <laughs> and we went and had just an amazing time. And archaeology had always been a passion for me, and so it kind of bloomed from there. And I specialize in studying ancient pottery, so I'm lucky that I get to go to Egypt a couple of times a year to do that. And Leslie Bromberg, how did you come across this topic, if you will, the country of Egypt and ancient life there? Well, I have a, a gazillion miles from business travel, and for my son's graduation, I offered him a trip of his choice. And within three seconds, he said Egypt. So we went to Egypt, and the experience changed my life. There is nothing more profound than standing in a 4,500-year-old tomb and looking at the writings and hieroglyphs of people who, who lived that long ago and looking at the stories of their lives and understanding that there's very little that separates them from us now. And it was so moving that I came back to Tucson and immediately contacted the University of Arizona to learn more about ancient Egypt and was introduced to Dr. Wilkinson, who's a world-renowned Egyptologist right here at the U of A, who has since retired, unfortunately. And um, he invited me to an RC meeting, and I've been involved ever since. So, Dr. Ombi, what is the mission, if you will, of RC? What is your goal? What do you do? 
Well, the organization was founded in 1948 from a consortium of different scientific bodies, and the major goal really was to foster research on ancient Egypt within the United States, but also to support activities and endeavors going on in Egypt and really bring the U.S. and Egypt closer together. And so one of their major goals is to help train um, Egyptians in conservation efforts and in archaeology, and they have a great conservation program that is really having a significant impact in the U.S. And so, and then within the United States, they have 14 chapters, and the only one in Arizona is this local Tucson chapter, and our goal is to encourage an interest in Egypt um, within the Tucson community and also in Phoenix and get people interested in our topics and bring researchers. We usually have three lectures in the spring and three lectures in the fall, and so our fundraiser that's coming up is a part of that. Speaking of the fundraiser that's coming up, Leslie, what do you want to say about this Wednesday, October 14th event? Well, we have a wonderful Egyptologist coming in from Germany, and she is going to be lecturing. The lecture is free to the public on um, travel in ancient Egypt and how the Egyptians traveled around the area, which is very interesting. And then just right after her lecture, she's also a trained classical vocalist, and she sings um, ancient Egyptian love songs, songs that haven't been heard since the day of Ramses, and she's going to be singing and playing a a lute that is a replica of an ancient lute, and there will also be a lovely Middle Eastern buffet to accompany the event, and so it will be the lecture, dinner, and then a performance by um, our German Egyptologist. And Dr. Ombi, how have present conditions in Egypt made RC's mission more difficult with the political situations that have been going on? Well, it's actually made RC's mission even more instrumental because of the upheavals that the Egyptian government has gone through. It's meant that a lot of projects that they would have wanted to engage in may have been put on hold while they go through political reshuffling. So RC's been really able to come in and worked also with USAID to help ensure that there's some continuation of preservation efforts. And also USAID works on getting water, clean water to people. And so especially in times when um, the political system becomes a a little uncertain. There's been a lot of looting that's been going on in Egypt, and so RC's been helping to kind of curb some of that and make sure that remediations take place. We hear about these different organizations in the Middle East blowing up beautiful ancient structures. What do you think about that, Dr. Ombi? That's been heartbreaking. They just ISIS just blew up the major arch at Palmyra, and that was deeply upsetting. I have colleagues that work in the Near, near East, and you know it's it's heartbreaking when archaeology becomes a part of that political landscape and the message that they want to send, which is that the past doesn't matter. And it's it's hard for somebody like me when that's my job, <laughs> and I love the past, and I think it can tell us so much about where we've come from and ways to navigate the future. And so um, I think that's why it's, it's satisfying to be a part of RC and be able to kind of, you know, explore that past and keep it alive and remind people of why it's still important and efforts we can go to help people in that area because they've lost their history as well. Okay. And Leslie Bromberg, for people who haven't been or haven't had time to learn anything about Egypt, ancient Egypt, why would you recommend that topic to them as a non-scientist? I think um, understanding our past certainly helps us understand who we are as people today. And the past becomes so present when you're in Egypt, and you connect so deeply to the lives that were lived then. They were incredibly intelligent, creative people, and the beauty that they created 
is amazing, and it's tragic that so much of it has been destroyed. I was actually back in Egypt for a dig that the University of Arizona does um, right at the start of the revolution. And um, it is so sad to think that some of those areas that I saw are, are not the same any longer. RC's Egyptology event is Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. at the Tucson Racquet Club. Information is on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Artist and writer Beth Surtit listens to ravens and paddles with alligators in wild and scenic places. But she also knows true adventure can be found just outside your window. The lizard population around my house is so busy, so varied, that it's difficult to choose just one to talk to you about. On my way to the trash bin this week, zebra-tailed lizards who like big open spaces so they can keep track of predators skittered, stopped, lifting their black and white striped tails high and gently waving them languidly like underwater sea anemones to let me know that my presence threatened their delicate existence. Then off they ran in completely different directions. Chunky desert spiny or sleek whiptails tend to scuttle for cover under rocks, into holes they've dug into sandy soil, up trees, and under anything prickly or shady. There's one particular spiny lizard who I call the sentry, because he often watches me from the same spot, just underneath the pink oleander hedge, his head turning slightly as he tracks me. But not the regal horned lizard. The operative word for this spiky, fringed, multicolored, speckled, phrenosoma, that's with a PH, solare, is slow. Slow eaters, but no slouches. Horned lizards are ant specialists that can eat as many as 2,500 harvester ants in a day. So stop with pesticides. Bring on the horny toads, which are not toads at all. The crown of horns on their heads is so indigestible, it can pierce through a snake from the inside as it tries to swallow the lizard. And then there's the blood. If you look very carefully, you might see just a horned head poking out of a hole in the morning after a cool desert night. The lizard is letting the sun warm the blood in its head, and when the blood is warm enough, it circulates through the rest of the body. While that is impressive, there is a defense mechanism right out of a science fiction movie. When threatened, this rather cute little beast can squirt foul-tasting blood from its eyes. Not only is the action shocking, but also discouraging to a number of predators like foxes, dogs. The blood just doesn't taste good. And here was a regal horned lizard right on my front stoop, pointed and crenellated, stubby and shy, Lizard was so intent on watching a grasshopper that neither one moved when I appeared. Patience, such patience, I thought, as I stood next to the lizard, admiring him with my camera. 
grasshopper did not move. My camera snapped at them. Lizard glanced at me, then back to grasshopper. Snap, said my camera. Lizard did not twitch. Grasshopper held his ground. So smart, I thought. Grasshopper knows the speed of a lizard, because at that point, I didn't know I was looking at the slowpoke of the lizard world. Playing it safe, I thought. Oh, the wisdom of the wild. I shifted my stance, and Lizard lost his focus. Didn't squirt blood from his eyes, but scuttled into the blue agave whose spines would protect him from me. Grasshopper did not move. Closer inspection allowed. Surely, Grasshopper would leap now. But it is hard to leave when one leg is stuck to the pavement. Impossible to leave when you are desiccated, preserved, perfect, but dead. The regal-horned lizard, Tumamok in the language of Tohono O'odham, and I had patiently stalked a dead grasshopper. Or had we? I called research scientist Matt Good at the University of Arizona's Desert Laboratory on Tumamok Hill. He told me that although it was possible the lizard was interested in the grasshopper, much more likely, Lizard wanted to place his sticky tongue on the ants around Grasshopper, or thought he was hiding from me, blending in with his fringed perimeter and rock-like coloration. So, even though I thought I was paying attention, in part because of what I'd learned about other lizards, it wasn't just about looking, it was about looking it up. I also checked in with the National Phenology Network based on UA's main campus. Phenology, that's P-H, like phrenosoma, refers to studying seasonal behavior in plants and animals, especially in relationship to climate. The Phenology Network coordinates nature's notebook online, where anyone, including you, can sign up to log in their observations about species behavior. Scientists can then tap into our data to use for studies that can help define the future of our environment and these critters I so delight in sharing with you. National Phenology Week is in October. On October 20th at 3 p.m., Beth Sertit is leading a workshop called The Art of Paying Attention, Critter Tales, Yours, Mine, and Ours, at the Tucson Botanical Gardens. There's a link to sign up on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Rick and Laura Brown are a husband and wife team of sculptors who were professors at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. For six years, the Browns led more than 100 students and volunteers in reconstructing an 18th century Polish synagogue. It was one of hundreds of buildings burned to the ground during the Nazi occupation of World War II. The story is told in the documentary Raise the Roof that screened in Tucson this week as part of the Tucson Festival of Films and the Jewish International Film Festival. I'm Rick Brown. I'm a full professor at Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston, and I'm co-founder of Hans House Studio, which is a nonprofit where we build large historic objects as educational projects. My wife and I are both are trained sculptors, and uh, we've been sculpting since the 70s. And um, so we, we have a long history of, of making. And we've always uh, liked the idea of learn by doing. We'll talk about Raise the Roof in particular in just a moment. But um, 
Can you give us some idea of the range of projects that you've worked on in this capacity? Over a relatively short period of time, about 15 years, we've done a wide range of, of, of projects that are um, they're different time periods, different cultures, different technologies. But uh, we, for example, we raised uh, an obelisk uh, using, uh, you know, our theory on how the Egyptians raised an obelisk uh, 3,500 years ago. For We did that for PBS's Nova. Uh, we also uh, built a, a replica, full-scale replica of uh, David Bushnell's uh, Revolutionary War submarine. We did that for uh, Discovery Channel. Uh, we also built, most recently, a um, uh, here at Hans House, a uh, 18th century a Polish bell tower, and uh, we cast a 300-pound bell to go on the tower. So, um, <laughs> It's just amazing we, stuff, Rick. I mean, it seems like you could spend a lifetime on any one of those projects. We're educators. Uh, our main interest is creating um, you know, a learning uh, situation for students. We call it a dynamic learning environment. We, we, we actually uh, don't think of ourselves as teachers. We really are not interested in imparting information. We're more interested in students having a, a very um, memorable experience. And so we pick projects that have a broad scope. Tell us what the project that you did for the documentary Raise the Roof entailed. So we had a, a person that uh, told us about a project in Poland where they, the, somebody from the Ministry of Culture wanted to find people that are from around the world that would be interested in uh, replicating an 18th century uh, wooden synagogue. Uh, and so we're not Jewish, we're not Polish, but we, um, we saw a photograph of one of these synagogues. There were actually over 200 of these synagogues built uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And by the end of World War II, they all had been destroyed. And so when we saw this picture, we said, oh, this is, this is amazing. This will be a fantastic uh, Hans House project. This is going to be something that's going to be a we can definitely create a dynamic learning experience. So we kept trying to find more and more aspects of the synagogues that would uh, inform us about the history and about how they were made. And because there was a very li limited information because the synagogues had been destroyed. And so um, we started doing uh, travel programs, taking students to Poland to research and do field work on churches that were built in the same time period as the synagogues. They were built in the same proximity, and, and we b believe with the same materials and processes, and so we did that field work over a number of years. And then we decided to replicate one of the um, interior paintings of uh, the Gavogis synagogue. Now, Raise the Roof is about that specific synagogue, Gavogis. And um, uh, the interiors of these synagogues were painted from the floor to the ceiling, and then the entire ceiling, and they were painted uh, with a multitude of images. They looked a lot like an oriental rug. That was Rick Brown sharing some insight into how a missing piece of Poland's Jewish history was rebuilt, a story covered in depth in the documentary film Raise the Roof. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>